0: And ego, if every one of us quit lusting and coveting, if every one of us quit lying, cheating, stealing, and getting drunk, if every one of us showed perfect, sterling, godly character, it still would not impress the world. It would not make a ripple. There are all kinds of religious groups and organizations around the world who have varying moral codes and varying ability to live up to those codes. So the world is very little concerned with us. I don't think it would turn the world on its end if we were to keep the Sabbath and the Holy Days to you. We've been doing it now for roughly 70 years and it hasn't turned anything upside down. they look at it as kind of funny maybe, but it doesn't have any effect. Now where does it have effect? With God. It is tantamount to turning the world upside down for any human being to begin to really act and think and be like God. That has to come as such an absolute shock almost surprised to God to see anyone become truly converted because there's been so little of it. Now, he knows it's going to happen. He's been working on it. Before he's done, he's going to get 144,000 out of the 50 or 60 billion that have lived. So the spiritual is not going to impress this world too greatly. God will use other means to do that. And I think that we're now beginning to see that there may need to be a physical temple built by God's people, not the Jews, and that Jerusalem may need to be restored and builded. Uh, And if God turns up the temple vessels and the historical records, perhaps some original scriptures, maybe the things that Moses wrote that are in the Ark of the Covenant, maybe some of the other original scrolls that some of the other books of the Bible were written on. Um, Those would turn the world upside down. Would that particularly impress God? No. He knows where all those things are. He's the one that made sure they stayed hidden. He's the one that can turn them up at the right time in the right place with the right people. So it's not something that's going to impress him. What this really all boils down to is who are we trying to impress, man or God? We can impress God with true Spirituality. We can impress man with the physical. But God wants to be impressed with our spiritual temple, and he also wants to impress upon the world that he is God. So it appears that the end-time work really is two-pronged. One to impress God with spirituality. The other is to impress the world with the things of God that are physical, because they are not impressed by the spiritual. They are impressed by the physical. We should keep that in our thinking, uh, and we should keep that perspective in our thinking of what is the most important. It would be easy to let ourselves get on the physical and the things that God is going to do that will turn the world on its end because truly in some respects, it could also turn us on our ends. But we need to understand that the spiritual is always more important and that God can only use us to do the physical in his work toward the world if we keep the spiritual in perspective. So this isn't about temples and cities as much as it is the holy spiritual temple of God, our bodies, our minds. And that we must always keep first and foremost. All right, let's go down then to Ezra, and pick up the story here, Uh, yesterday we were talking about all the things that King Ahasuerus was willing to do for the Jews of that day, to give them everything they needed, the expenses, the temple treasures, um, the offerings for God. They were a poor people, remember, they'd just come out of slavery. They had nothing, and he gave them absolutely everything they needed. I would not be surprised to see us, along with this nation, suddenly have nothing. When the slave master Babylon is removed, and this country begins to go into captivity, there won't be much economy left, there won't be things to buy. Uh, Our people will either die of famine, pestilence, and disease, or be hauled out of here as slaves. So there's not going to be a whole lot left, and we will become dependent upon God. And that which he provides in whatever way he chooses to do it, and we've seen some of the ways, haven't we? They can laugh about us in our ring of fire if they want to, but God has promised it in his word. They're not making fun of us, they're making fun of the word of God, which they simply do not understand if they do that. Well, I don't know that anybody's against us in that sense. Maybe it's just kind of a tongue-in-cheek poking humor uh, at us, and that's okay. I don't mind that. In fact, I think it's kind of cute. <laughs> Some of you haven't heard that. We talked about it last night. Where, Because of the wall of fire we talk about in Zechariah 2, they're calling us the ring of fire people. That's okay. I think it's kind of cute. Maybe I'll start using that instead of wall. About the same thing. All right, let's go on down to chapter 8. These are now the chief of their fathers, and this is the genealogy of them that went up with me from Babylon in the reign of Ahasuerus the king. And he names a bunch of people here. Uh, I don't know that I'll go through all of that. That uh, just takes time, and and it doesn't at this moment uh, have any specific meaning that I can attach to it. Uh, maybe at some point uh, we'll understand just why God used the particular names he did, I think in a general sense, we have to understand that uh, early in Ezra, those that were named who came up a rebel, and here those who came up with Ezra, and that there may be a time when the faithful of the end time also were listed. You don't know these people, <clears throat> you might know them in the resurrection, and they certainly don't know you, but they know, may know you in the resurrection. So there may be a time when all these people get together and we get to be introduced. And maybe they'll get different names that are easier to say. Let's go to verse 21. Then I proclaimed a fast there at the river of Ahava, that we might afflict ourselves before our God. I looked up the river Ahava. No one knows where it was. No one knows what it is. There's a little bit of speculation that it might be... uh, a tributary of the Euphrates, but no one knows that, and some of the Bible dictionaries and encyclopedias are very quick to say that no one knows. So was it over there in Persia? Was it over where? I don't know. Nobody seems to know. Anyway, they were camped at a river named Ahava, and he proclaimed a fast. Why? That we might afflict ourselves before our God to seek of him a right way for us and for our little ones and for all our substance. You'll find through the Bible most times that are pivotal the people really need answers of which way to go, what to do. They seek God with fasting and prayer and supplication. Fasting is such a big part of finding God and determining his will. And we need to use that to quite a little. He isn't here with us now. He says, when I'm not here, then will will my servants fast. So any time we're really in dire need of an answer from God, that's the first thing we should do. For I was ashamed to require of the king a band of soldiers and horsemen to help us against the enemy in the way, because we had spoken to the king, saying, The hand of our God is upon all them for good that seek him but his power and his wrath is against all them that forsake him. He was concerned. There were thieves. There were enemies. As we'll see in a little bit, they had a great deal of treasure with them. And they told the king, don't worry about it. God will take care of us. And then they got out there, and there was no one around to protect them, and there were probably plunderers and uh, various ones that would be very, very happy to relieve them of the treasures they had and of their lives as well. So he scratched their head and said, maybe we ought to fast. And they said it would be embarrassing now to send back and say to the king, why don't you send an army out here to protect us after he'd already told the king God will protect us. Is this a good example to us here at the end, that we're going to need God's protection in the activities that are to come upon that we're to be involved in in the next few years. People have That's one of the first questions that comes up. Well, if the treasures of God are found, how are you going to protect them? We can hire Brinks or some armored car company or some of these armed guards that have never shot a pistol more than three times that ride around in cars and check convenience slots at night maybe. I jest. Those are God's treasures. He's protected them all these years. He's hidden them all these years. If he sees fit to bring them out, I reckon he can take care of them. He can protect them. He's God, remember? Oh, do we believe in God? That's the first question we have to actually answer. I believe. I know we believe there is a God. But then so do the de- demons and devils. They know there's a God and they fear and tremble. So knowing there's a God or believing there's a God isn't any real big deal, is it? These Gentile kings believed there was a God, but did they believe in him? Did they believe in his word? Were they willing to obey him and entrust their lives to him? In other words, do we believe in God as opposed to believing there is a God? It all comes down to faith and trust. And perhaps Ezra felt a little queasy there and a little unprotected, but he did the right thing. He started fasting and praying and asking for God's help so that they would be protected and not taken apart. But I think that is the answer for us. God shows us some things, hands us some treasures, to prove that he is God then he's going to prove that he's God and part of proving he's God is going to be protect what he has uncovered and protect those who have it and protect those that are there to build his temple and to build Jerusalem he will protect them that's what the wall or the ring of fire is all about really because God is going to take care of his people he's done it before do we believe the story about the Red Sea do we believe that there was Fire by night? What God has promised to do for us is nothing he hasn't done before. We believe the story. Why wouldn't he protect us coming out the same way he did then? So I'm not too worried about it. I figure God can take care of us. So we fasted and besought our God for this, and he was entreated of us. He listened. He heard And he made up his mind, yes, I will take care of you. Then I separated twelve of the chief of the priests, ten of their brethren with them, and weighed to them the silver and the gold and the vessels, even the offering of the house of our God, which the king and his counselors and his lords and all Israel there present had offered. So quite a little treasure was there in a pile, I guess, and uh, he divided it up by weight to be carried to Jerusalem. Each man was responsible for what he was given. It was weighed out, and then we'll find that they weighed it again at the other end of the trip to be sure that it hadn't kind of lost weight during the trip. Doesn't it just scare you silly to think of stealing something that is God's? I, I would be afraid to think that he might lay a curse on me if I stole that which was his took anything that belonged to God or God's people. You know, someday he's going to start reacting the way he did with Ananias and Sapphira or Achan. We want dramatic blessings from God, and that's what we think about. But you know, God is not really dramatic right now in blessing or in cursing. But when he begins to bless people in great degree, on the other side of the coin, he is going to bless... I mean, to curse in equal degree. Once he begins to act, he will act just as strongly for evil as he does for good, or against evil. So when we pray for for dramatic blessing, we had better well be aware that the other side of that coin will also show up. And I say I would be afraid, and yet don't I steal from God every day. I steal his honor, I steal his respect, by not living every thought and every action according to his will and his way, stealing his glory in that sense. When we're not perfectly obedient to God, it takes from him, because we represent him. So we all do it, but it really ought to scare us. So 26, I even weighed under their hands 650 talents of silver and, and silver vessels, 100 talents and of gold 100 talents, also 20 basins of gold of a 1,000 grams and two vessels of fine copper, precious as gold. And I said to them, You are holy to the eternal. They were bearing the vessels of God. The vessels are also Holy. And the silver and the gold are a freewill offering to the Lord God of your fathers. These are what God, God's people, have given as an offering to God. And Ezra made it very plain that the offering was holy, and those that bore it were holy. Now, doesn't that put into perspective a little more Isaiah 52, where it says to depart you from Babylon, touch not the unclean thing, and be and be you holy to bear the vessels of the eternal. And the silver and the gold are a free will offering uh, to the eternal God of your fathers. Watch you and keep them. Be careful with them, in other words. Treat them as something holy until you weigh them before the chief of the priests and the Levites and the chief of the fathers of Israel at Jerusalem (coughs) in the chambers of the house of the eternal. So took the priests and the Levites the weight of the silver and the gold and the vessels to bring them to Jerusalem to the house of our God. Then we departed from the river of Ahaba on the twelfth month, or twelfth day of the first month, to go to Jerusalem. And the hand of our God was upon us, and He delivered us from the hand of the enemy and of such as lay in wait by the way. Not only did they fast and pray about it and entreat God; He was entreated of them, heard them, and He carried through and protected them all the way through. So it can be done. God is not changed. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. In any project he has us to do here at the end, and we're talking about doing the same project all over again, are we not? If he protected once in this very same project, there's no question he can do the same again. That doesn't mean we shouldn't be careful and handle those things of God very carefully. Whether it be the word of God, his, his word, handled very carefully, he even says don't let... One word of it dropped to the ground to be sure that we don't let any of his word escape us or get away from us. And he would say the same thing of anything physical that is important, that we have to take very, very careful care of it, because it's his. And I think that that scripture in Haggai, chapter 2, comes into focus and into great play here, where he says, the gold is mine and the silver is mine. That which he turns up to use in the temple is his. It's not ours to use as we please. It's his to use as he directs. Uh, So they journeyed on, and they came to Jerusalem and abode there three days. So they rested up for three days after they arrived in Jerusalem, On the fourth day was a silver and gold, and the vessels weighed in the house of our God by the hand of Merimoth, the son of Uriah, the priest, and with him was Eliezer, and Josabad, the son of Jeshua, and Noadiah, and the son of Benui, or Benui, Levites. By number and by weight of every one, and all the weight was written at that time. So they took what had been given to each one, waited carefully, made sure it was all there, also the children of those that had been carried away, which were come out of the captivity, offered burnt offerings to the God of Israel, 12 bullocks for all Israel, 96 lambs, 77 lambs, 12 he goats for a sin offering. All this was a burnt offering to the eternal. That's a lot of butchering. That's a lot of hard work. But God is worth it. Make a fine offering to God. And if I forget to say so at the end of this, I do appreciate and thank you for all the fine offerings you've given here at the feast, uh, as God has directed us to do, to come before him empty, but to give an offering to our God. He puts it in the hands of men, but he asks us that we handle it carefully and that we be holy and use it in a holy manner. So we will attempt to do that, but thank you for bringing that which you've brought before God. Some of you who are new might have been wondering when the offertory was going to come and uh, when we were going to get a quiet offering and then a noisy offering and then a pair of your checks and write a bigger one offering and all that. And I forgot, I'm sorry. Uh, didn't do that. No, we don't do that. We just put a box there. It's your responsibility. It's not mine to extract money from you. Extraction, isn't that a dental word? It's not a church word, not a godly word. We're not here to extract money from you. We're here to handle that which you willingly and cheerfully bring to God. And you alone can make up your mind how much you can cheerfully give. Uh, Nobody else can. And it used to irritate me no end when they'd get up at the feast and encouraging me to give more and more and more and make me feel guilty that I hadn't decided originally to give more than that. And then, if I gave more than the average, which they were quick to trot out after the service, then I could be proud that I was better than the rest of you guys who didn't give as much as me. I think the whole attitude, the whole approach was totally wrong. So be thankful for what you could bring. And don't feel guilty for what you didn't. This thing isn't about money. It never has been. And I hope that I will never feel a need to ask you for money. Except to pay for the four-wheeler you're in it. You know. <laughs> There's a difference <laughs> between offerings and things given to God and, and the mundane that we, that we have to do. Uh, for food and so on, but you know what I'm talking about. Let's do it God's way. Okay, uh, they gave these offerings, and they delivered the king's commissions to the king's lieutenants and the governors on this side of the river, and they furthered the people <clears throat> in the house of God. So they used that which had been offered for the purposes God gave it, or for that it was given, that it was given to God. Now when these things were done, the princes came to me saying, The people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the people of the land doing according to their abominations, either of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the New Yorkers, the Los Angeles, the Denverites, and those from Houston. Where did you see that? For they have taken of their daughters for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy seed have mingled themselves with the people of those lands. Yes, the hand of the princes and rulers have been chief in this trespass. Can you believe that these Jews had disobeyed some of the commands of God? Isn't that incredible that they would have done such a thing? They had physically married with all these Gentile tribes around them. (laughs) And it came to Ezra's attention, including the leaders. Verse 3, And when I heard this thing, I rent my garment and my mantle and plucked off the hair of my head and of my beard and sat down astonished. That's a pretty strong emotional reaction, just to rip your clothes apart, rip your mantle, pull out all your hair, and jerk your beard out. That's how dismayed he was. Then were assembled in me everyone that trembled at the words of the God of Israel because of the transgression of those that had been carried away. And I sat astonished till the evening sacrifice. Now not everyone reacted properly to this, only those who feared God. I mean, you knew something was up when you saw this guy with his head and his face bleeding and his clothes rent in two. And at the evening sacrifice I rose up from my heaviness and having rent my garment and my mantle I fell upon my knees and spread out my hands to the eternal my God. I would call this doing it with your might, wouldn't you? I would call this turning wholeheartedly to God when he realized how sinful he and the people had been and he He just couldn't handle it. So he repented and dust and sackcloth and ashes, more or less. It was a great shame in those days for anyone to see your bare face. David and his men went and hid after they were shaved until their beards were grown back. It made them uh, appear more effeminate, not to have hair on their face, more like a woman. And that was a great embarrassment, too. So when Ezra plucked all the hair out of his face, It was embarrassing, but the sin and the guilt of sin was so great that the embarrassment of being bald-faced was not a problem to him. And I said, oh my God, I am ashamed and blush to lift up my face to you, my God, for our iniquities are increased over our head, and our trespass is grown up to the heavens, Since the days of our fathers have we been in a great trespass to this day, and for our iniquities have we, our kings and our priests, been delivered into the hand of the kings of the lands for the sword, the captivity, and the spoil, and the confusion of face as it is this day. We are right on the verge of this nation going into captivity to fall to the sword and the spoil and confusion of face. It isn't very far off. And we are in the position of having just come out of the captivity of 70 years in this Babylonian culture. And we're supposed to be becoming separate from it and becoming holy that bear the vessels of the eternal. And we have a lot of work to do. And we should be very embarrassed when we think the wrong thoughts and do the wrong things. And be very, very careful in everything we think and say and do. Remember Zechariah 1, when it starts introducing uh, the end-time topic there, right out of the middle of Haggai, where it says to build a temple? It says, don't be like your fathers who denied God and wouldn't listen to the prophets. But listen, hear, do something about it. So he says, verse 8, and now for a little space of time, grace has been showed from the Lord our God to leave us a remnant to escape. I think that's right where we are right now. Just before this nation falls and is taken captive, God has allowed us a little time of grace before he pulls the wool uh, the rug out from under the whole nation. And he's given us a chance to be a faithful remnant. This is our chance. This is our opportunity. Let's not let it slide by. God is giving us understanding and knowledge, isn't he? A lot of people are not yet receiving that. They don't know what's about to happen. They don't know what to do about it. They're just going on in their little world thinking they're a Philadelphian and everything will be just fine. It's just not so. It's going to hurt when it comes on them. We need to feel compassion and love and pity and not self-righteousness because you and I are no better than any one of them in any form or fashion. In fact, whom did those, who were those that God called out to go with David? You know, He was in exile before Saul and ran to hide and there were some people who came to be with him. Who was it? Murderers, those that were in debt, uh riffraff, jobless, <laughs> you know. It wasn't the governors and the kings and the princes. It was the dregs of society. We're the weak and the base, and we're no better than anyone else anywhere. The only advantage we have at the moment is God has shown us grace and mercy and letting us see what he is doing because he needed somebody to come out and prepare the way. So he chose us, such as we are. And when the way is prepared, and God begins to do some things, if we qualify, then it will be to his glory, certainly not ours. Our little community looks a little better, maybe, than the rest of the cane beds, but not a whole lot. We have old trailers and funny shaped barns and bins and colors and everything else, too. So there's nothing we can be proud of, nor should we. But don't be discouraged by that. That's the way God works. By the time David's little crew of riffraff was finished, it would become mighty men. And I hope that we can become mighty men and women, mighty in faith, mighty in love, mighty in hope, and mighty in deed, through the Spirit of the eternal, powerful, almighty God. It's all that matters. But well, He's given us a chance to leave us a remnant to escape. And to give us a nail in his holy place that our God may lighten our eyes and give us a little reviving in our bondage. He hasn't yet shined the light of his favor all over us, but if he gives us a little light, a little bit of light at the end of the tunnel, if you will, and a nail in his holy place, a place to hang our hat where God is. For we were bondmen. We were slaves to this world, weren't we? Yet our God has not forsaken us in our bondage, but has extended mercy to us in the sight of the kings of Persia to give us a reviving, to set up the house of our God and to repair the desolations thereof, and to give us a wall in Judah and in Jerusalem. So Ezra understood the temple had to be built, for he understood the next job was to build Jerusalem and the wall or the moat around Jerusalem. Sounds just like... Daniel 9, doesn't it, in time prophecy? We know what has to be done. Now we need to do our part so that God will use us to be a part of that. And now, O our God, what shall we say after this? For we have forsaken your commandments. Uh, Their marrying among the Gentiles is tantamount to us seeking after the lovers of this world in the way we go about our lives. Being involved in their music, their entertainment, their their fiat money system that is haywire with their culture in every way. Whatever it might be, it is ungodly. Some people think that Ron Paul would save the nation if he were elected. He has a groundswell of followers that is getting bigger because he understands the fiat money system is nothing but a paper dream and will go up in smoke. He understands certain things about what's wrong with our culture. could begin to save us, but there was a way that he could get elected, and there isn't. Because we're going to be punished for our individual sin, for the way we are living. So it's not a political problem at all. It's a sin problem. And that's what God is going to punish for. So even if you get a good political leader in there who understands economics better, and isn't that what we think would save everything? Because all we worry about, basically, in America today, most Americans, is the economy. Keep my money coming so I can have a soft life. That's about as deep as any American or most Americans think because materialism and money and buying things is the god of this nation. That's part of our boredom with the world is being too materialistic ourselves and we have to get past that. We're bound, we're bondmen to this economic system, aren't we? It's hard to shake it. I think we're going to have to have God's help to get away from it. Of course, it's going to crash and go away anyway. Then what? The gods are going to be destroyed. And one of the first gods to go is going to be the economy. The capacity of Americans to follow the god of materialism. It'll just be simply taken away. That's why I feel it's important we start separating as much as we can from it now and become as self-sufficient as we possibly can become uh, and trusting in God more and more and then he's going to make it possible to trust him entirely. But we have to make some effort. We have to move forward and trying to become self-sufficient. That's what Joseph did in the good years of plenty in, in uh, Egypt and I think that's what we should be doing as well. What can we say? We've broken God's commandment. Verse 11, Which you have commanded by your servants the prophets, saying, The land to which you go to possess it is an unclean land, with the filthiness of the people of the lands. With their abominations, which have filled it from one end to another, but their uncleanness. Is it any wonder God says, Depart from her. Get away from her. Make haste away from her. Leave the cities. Go dwell in the field. lest you be partakers of our sins and our plagues. Do we believe him? How many times have I said these things? And how hard is it for us to actually begin to make the breaks that we need to make? Difficult. It's hard. It's hard for Americans to see that the American way is Satan's way, isn't it? its our way. That's how we grew up. We don't know anything else. We've got to learn something else, that's all. We've got to learn God's way. Now therefore, give not your daughters unto their sons, neither take their daughters to your sons, nor seek their peace or their wealth forever. So it wasn't just marriage. But don't try to seek uh, covenants with them of peace. Make peace agreements and don't seek their wealth. He tells us back in Deuteronomy that we're not to be borrowers, but lenders. He said, you can be a lender if you want to, but don't you be a borrower. How many people in America are borrowers? Credit cards, big balances. We owe on our cars, we owe on our houses, we owe on our earrings, we owe, you know... Virtually everything Americans owe. And now our nation owes approaching 10 trillion dollars to other peoples. And when you consider obligations like Social Security, it's more like 70 trillion. You have to run the printing presses awfully fast to print that much money. And then it becomes worthless. Because the more you print, the more of it there is, it becomes like confetti not worth anything. Gold just went over $800 for the first time since, I guess, 1980 today. But you know what? It would have to go today to $2,000 an ounce to be worth what it was in 1980 at $850 an ounce. In other words, the dollar is worth so much less today than it was in 1980 that even if it reached the, the record of 8.50, which it reached in 1980, they wouldn't come anywhere near buying <clears throat> the amount they would buy in 1980. Our dollar is going down the rat hole. And it is a fiat currency that is worthless and based on nothing but confidence in it. And yet we borrow, borrow, borrow And all the goods that we have, they're going to repossess one of these days. I read an article where they put out hundreds of billions in these uh, lousy mortgage and credit instruments. And somebody was crowing that, boy, we were smart. We sold them all off and got them to overseas people. So we weren't left holding the bag. Yeah, be smart Alec, all you want. But what about when all those people over there realize that they just got hundreds of billions of dollars of worthless stuff and paid their good money for it? They're not going to be very happy campers. Some of that smart aleck may get knocked off your face when they decide to come over here and foreclose on those buildings. We did exactly what God told us not to do. We became, we used to be the world's greatest lender. Now we're the world's greatest borrower. And it's just happened in a few years. Turned completely around. And there is no getting out of it. We were in hock so deep, there's no way out. Just because we broke that one verse, that one statement of God, because of our greed, we had to have what we wanted to have. So we borrowed ourselves into bankruptcy pretty soon into captivity. God tells us here, when you go in to possess the land, don't marry their sons and daughters, don't seek their peace. God will protect us for their wealth. God will provide wealth in his way. You don't have to get it from others. That you may be strong. We're not strong anymore. We're weak and eat the good of the land, and leave it for an inheritance to your children forever." Our children no longer have an inheritance. We have borrowed money and borrowed money from other nations to the place that our farms, our land, our parks are all mortgaged to foreigners for the most part. And it's becoming more and more of that every day. There's nothing left for our children. They're going to come in and take it all, and legally. And after all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and for our great trespass, seeing that our God has punished us less than our iniquities deserve, and has given us such deliverance, is this. I think we can be thankful, you and I, that God has given us the knowledge to begin to disassociate ourselves from this, lest we partake of the sins and the plagues. Should we again break your commandments and join in affinity with the people of these abominations? Shall we begin to eat and drink with the drunken and say the Lord delays his coming? Or should we get on with it? Would not you be angry with us till you had consumed us so that there should be no remnant nor escaping? Yes, that's right. If we go back the wrong way, God's wrath will fall upon us as well. We're only special and special to God so long as we obey him, and if we don't, then that special status will be removed and will be destroyed with everyone else. O Lord God of Israel, you are righteous, for we remain yet escaped as it is this day. Behold, we are before you in our trespasses, for we cannot stand before you because of this. So, they had built the temple, they were considering building the wall. God had given them the temple vessels, God had given them the wealth of the Persian Empire, and yet they realized they were still far from perfect, and that they had better repent and do God's way, otherwise they would all be taken away. Now when Ezra had prayed and when he had confessed, chapter 10, weeping and casting himself down before the house of God, there assembled to him out of Israel a very great congregation of men and women and children, so the people wept very sore. This was a big deal. They had married all these women who were not of Israel. They had children by them. And Shechaniah, the son of Je- Jehi- or Je- yeah, Jehiel, one of the sons of Elam, answered and said to Ezra, "We have trespassed against our God and have taken strange wives of the people of the land. Yet now there is hope in Israel concerning this sake. Now therefore let us make a covenant with our God to put away all the wives." And such as are born of them, according to the counsel of my Lord, and of those that tremble at the commandment of our God, and let it be done according to the law. Now this sounds harsh, doesn't it? I'm sure those men love their wives, their children, and that the children love their father. But what had been done was ungodly. And God did not approve of it. They had to fix it. Didn't Christ himself say that we'd better be willing to give up father, mother, brother, sister, our mates, our lands, our homes, for his sake? There's nothing on this earth, including our blood relatives, that God says we cannot be unwilling to give up. Sounds very harsh. 1 Corinthians 7 is all about if a mate is pleased to dwell with you, then dwell with them, serve them. But if they get in the way of you obeying God, because we are told in Acts 5.29, obey God rather than man, that you have every right to separate and even to remarry in the church, not outside, because God is the one who did not call your mate, and he takes responsibility for it. If he only called you and your mate fights you and will not let you obey God, then you have a right, according to 1 Corinthians 7, <clears throat> to separate and even to remarry there are people who will argue that, but that's plainly what the Scripture says. A believer is not bound. If you're not bound, you're unbound. And if you're unbound, you're free to marry. Now, some would be self-righteous about that, but God did make an allowance because he is the one who calls, one or both. And this is a serious matter, and I'm not, standing here trying to promote divorce and remarriage by any means. Marriage is sacrosanct before God. So don't get me wrong on that. I'm not looking for excuses. And when that doctrine was changed in the church, people misused and abused it horribly, swapping wives and doing all kinds of things that were wrong all across the country and around the world. And the ministry was in great part to blame for allowing that to happen. And some of them did the same thing. So when God makes a righteous allowance for something and people abuse it, then they are culpable, and God will hold them responsible and accountable for it. Let's not get too much sidetracked onto that. So he said, Arise, for this matter belongs to you, to to Ezra. We will also will be with you, be of courage, and do it. Whatever deems to be done that God says we will back you. It's going to be tough. Get it done. Then arose Ezra and made the chief priests of the Levites and all Israel to swear that they should do according to this word. And they swore. And Ezra rose up from before the house of God and went into the chamber of Johan, Johanan, the son of Eliashib, Eliashib. And when he came there, he did eat no bread nor drink water, for he mourned because of the transgression of them that had been carried away and they made proclamation throughout Judah and Jerusalem to all the children of the captivity that they should gather themselves together to Jerusalem serious business let's all get together and that whosoever would not come within three days according to the counsel of the princes and the elders all his substance should be forfeited and himself separated from the congregation of those that had been carried away. If you didn't come up to Jerusalem to solve this problem, it was pretty dire. Everything you had would be taken away, and you'd be separated away. We disfellowship somebody for a little while because of some particular personal sin. In today's climate of the church, everybody's, oh, my, you can't do that. Not only that, you can't disfellowship me here because I'll go somewhere else. Ha, ha, ha. So there's no way to put teeth in it anyway, is there? Except for that group. But the Bible example for anything contagious like that is to separate them so it doesn't spread. Sin is either of a contagious nature or it is not. Sometimes it's personal, it's private, no one knows about it and you can be worked with. But if it's contagious and other people are picking up on it and coming to have the same attitudes and actions then it has to be cut off and put away. God's always done it that way. Then all the men of Judah and Benjamin gathered themselves together to Jerusalem within three days. And then they had difficulty doing this because there was great rain. Hard to gather and talk about your wives and children when rain's being pelting on your head. Verse 10, Ezra the priest stood up and said to them, you've transgressed and have taken strange wives to increase the trespass of Israel, because he had clearly told them, don't do that, don't marry outside Israel. Now therefore, make confession to the eternal God of your fathers, and do his pleasure, and separate yourselves from the people of the land and from the strange wives. Then all the congregation answered and said with a loud voice, as you have said, so must we do. Can you imagine some of the attitudes about authority and church government and so on that would come out today if God caused some proclamation about some part of his law? Ain't nobody going to tell me what to do. I'm not going to do that. I'll go somewhere else. Anyway, let's don't go there too long. But the people are many, and it is a time of much rain, and we are not able to stand without, neither is this a work of one day or two for we are many that have transgressed in this thing. They had to sort through the genealogies to see that those wives indeed were of a Gentile race and then put them away accordingly with their children. Verse 14, Let now our rulers of all the congregations stand, and let all them which have taken strange wives in our cities come at appointed times, and with them the elders of every city, and the judges thereof, until the fierce wrath of our God for this matter be turned from us. God wasn't happy. Verse 16, the children of the captivity did so, and Ezra the priest was certain chief of the fathers after the house of their fathers, and all of them by their names were separated and sat down on the first day of the tenth month to examine the matter. And they made an end with all the men that had taken strange wives by the first day of the first month. So a matter of months here to go through it all. And among the sons of the priests there were found that had taken strange wives, namely the sons of... Yeshua, the sons of Josephach, and his brethren, and it names a bunch more. Verse 19, and they gave their hands that they would put away their wives, and being guilty, they offered a ram of the flock for their trespass. Then it names a whole bunch of people who had to put away their wives and children. Sad day. Repentance and turning to God when you've been going a wrong way is always a difficult, sad, frustrating day. Because all the things you wanted to do and did do, you have to turn and walk away from. And the guilt that goes with it. So it names all these people in verse 44. It says, all these have taken strange wives, and some of them had wives by whom they had children. So it included all of it. It would be easy to say, oh, goody, goody, God put us in a place where we can be a part of what he does here at the end. But we need to take assessment of ourselves and be sure that we separated the clean from the unclean and that we're putting away Babylon from our thoughts and minds and hearts and coming to truly worship and obey God in the way that he wants to be worshipped. Everybody has their idea of how they want to worship God. But very, very rarely is their idea of how he wants to be worshipped the way he wants to be worshipped. And there's a whole story of that all the way through the Bible. You've got to do it according to his rules and his way. He said it doesn't count. The Pharisees had decided how they wanted to worship God. And Christ told them, you may be sincere in what you're doing, you may believe what you're doing, you may think it's good, holy, and righteous, but you're worshipping your father the devil. Ooh, pretty tough words. You don't even know the Father. You're not doing it his way. God has called us, brethren, to do a very, very important work. To work in the building of His spiritual temple and possibly to work in building a physical temple and the walls of Jerusalem. Both are very serious undertakings with great implications here at the end. I hope that we have that better in mind now, a better understanding, having gone through some of these scriptures that God wrote, uh, because they certainly do apply now, and they have become very, very real to us. So we need to buck up, straighten up, do what we need to do so that we can be holy and bear the vessels of the eternal. And this is something that goes on beyond today. This is the last great day of the feast. We've gone through seven days picturing the millennium of God when Christ will have married his bride and will have made a mother and kings and priests and rulers of her and will bring peace, happiness, and prosperity to this world. He has given you and me an opportunity to become a part of a very small microcosm of what that day will be like right here at the end. And he is going to intervene soon in ways that will astound us. Because he wants an example of what it will be to be put before this world who's trying to do it their way. We can't do it our way. We have to give up our concourse and our intercourse and all kinds of course with this world and do it God's way. Then he will use us to help bring peace, happiness, contentment so the wolves and lions and lambs can all lie down together in peace on the snake hole. And then it extends to the day when all those people, those billions of people, are going to be resurrected into a peaceful, happy, wholesome world, and the misery and the pain that they died in through cancer, heart disease, diabetes, amputations legs, arms, ears blown off in war, starvation, all the ways they've died. They're going to be brought back with healthy bodies, healthy minds, and we will be there to help teach them the way of peace and love, which is all they ever really wanted. They just wanted peace and love, and they went about it the wrong way. It will be our job to teach them the right way. You wanted peace and love, and you went this way, you went that way. You tried every kind of government, you tried every kind of philosophy that you could come up with to bring peace and love, and it didn't work. There's only one way you didn't try. You tried everything you could think of except this one way. Now listen, because you're going to hear the only way that peace and love and happiness can come. Are we convinced? Are we committed to live the only, the one and only way that produces peace? I hope all of you traveling have a safe trip home. I hate to this day It's been a wonderful time, and I appreciate all your attitudes and all you've done. I'm a big baby. But thank you for all you've done, serving one another, loving one another, and serving God, and I hope that he has looked upon us with grace and favor, and he will give us time and a sure nail and a safe place to be able to produce the kind of fruit that he wants to enable us to build his temple in his city spiritually and physically so let's take it serious let's take our God serious and put away all our other gods and serve the one almighty true God of heaven and earth